You're listening to Hitting the Mark. My name is Ray Carr, along with Cindy Verblin and the star of our show, Jeffrey Mark. It was a, it was good advice to me. I wish I'd listened a little bit better. I got carried away. I have to admit it. I, I, I got a little too generous with the people I loved. I should have invested some of that money. Today, I'd probably be a very wealthy man, but I, I, I didn't handle it well. Phyllis handled it well. And she ended up with this gorgeous, gorgeous mansion in Bel Air. Uh, one of the largest homes I have ever been inside. Uh, and and she, she was such a, a grateful person. Grateful for, I mean, you come from not knowing how you're gonna put food on the table to living like this. And if you have a good heart, you, you remember the hard times. And she was so grateful for what she had and grateful to Bob Hope. Bob Hope is the one who said, hey, come in the movies with me. And they did a series of films together in the 1960s that really took her above and beyond just being a nightclub comic. Not that there's anything wrong with being a nightclub comic, I'm one of those, but it really put her in the national spotlight as an actor. And uh, in her home on a giant easel was an oil painting of Bob Hope in her living room with a spotlight on it to always remember how good he had been to her. Wow. Yeah, Bob Hope was a, a great man. In fact, uh, they both shared a writer. Her name was Martha Bolton. She wrote for Phyllis uh, and she also wrote for Bob. Yeah, as, as we are recording this, Martha right now is um, releasing a book along yeah. with Linda Hope uh, about some of Bob Hope's war stuff and letters and things. Martha, Martha was the very rare female comedy writer uh, who wrote for comedians, as opposed to Madeline Pugh Martin Davis, who wrote for I Love Lucy, or Irma Kalish, who with her husband Austin wrote for sitcoms. Martha wrote comedy, stand-up comedy, funny funny punchlines, funny jokes. Very rare for a woman. You know, Lucille Callan did that in the 50s. Uh, so Martha, Martha's having a little revival now of, of, her, of her good talent. Yeah. Uh, She's on our show tomorrow. You yeah. enjoy, hey folks, when you listen to her, you're gonna have a really good time. Ray and, and Cindy will, are bringing you somebody who's got some really good stories to share. Uh, Phyllis, Phyllis, bought, Phyllis bought her comedy from anybody. Anybody could come up to her and say, I've got a joke for you. And if she liked it, she'd pay for it and use it. How, what kind of jokes, what, what kind of jokes did she like? I mean, it, she probably liked a lot of jokes, but she didn't use them all on stage. She liked two kinds of jokes the best, I think. At least when we talked about it, this is what she said. She liked jokes in nightclubs that were witty double entendres. She didn't mind going adult. She didn't use foul language, but she liked witty. Uh, if you understand what I'm saying, oh, yeah. the joke has to be sophisticated, witty, and say what she wants it to say. Because by the time, or oh, by the mid-1960s, Phyllis had so well established her stage character 
that you could write jokes for her because she was going to talk about her looks. She wanted to talk about her lack of a sex life. She wanted to talk about her body. She wanted to talk about not liking to cook or clean or be a domestic person. And, and then her husband, Fang, who, who never existed. He was a, a figment of her imagination and her creativity. So if, if you knew all of those things, you could write jokes to those points. The other jokes she liked were what she called lappy jokes. Put them right in the audience's lap. They don't have to think twice about what does it mean. It's right there. Uh, she and Joan Rivers, I keep bringing up Joan's name because they did do sometimes some of the same kinds of material. They both joked about not having much of a bosom. They both joked the legs are the first thing to go. They both joked about not having much of a sex life before they got married. They both eventually did jokes about their husbands although Phyllis's was an imaginary husband. He, she, she created that fanged character just to give her another thing to do. Phyllis had, was very, 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 very wise about this. She knew she had to come up with stuff that she could use on the Ed Sullivan show, on the Carol Burnett show, on the Tonight Show that was clean. So she had to have almost two levels of things, her television jokes and the stuff she did in nine clubs, which was more sophisticated and witty. Was there a particular male comedian that, that she enjoyed working with or enjoyed his material a lot? Well, Bob Hope, certainly. Bob Hope, first, last, always. Phyllis was a great admirer of young talent. Phyllis uh, loved Tim Conway because he came from Ohio. It was Rosemary who found him, but Phyllis and Steve Allen helped get him on his feet. Uh, my, my dear, 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 dear friend, she and Jack Riley were close. Uh, and I got to know Phyllis better through Jack Riley. Um, I guess I should tell you how I met her. It's, 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 a, it's a strange, ha-ha, funny story. I had volunteered for free to help out a comedian and comedy writer by the name of Pat McCormick. Oh, I know Pat. Pat, for those of you who don't know who he was, got started in game shows as a production assistant, and I've got a secret, but a wacky, wacky, wacky sense of humor. He eventually wrote for Johnny Carson, all the characters Johnny did on The Tonight Show, and he worked in almost Smokey and the Bandit movies because he was six foot seven or eight and you really, you looked up at him. By this time, unfortunately, Pat had had a stroke and was living in the motion picture home in Woodland Hills, California. And I was asked to write a book that would bring him in some income about him. To that end, Phyllis agreed to let me come to her house and interview her. And that was the first time I was at the mansion. I give her credit because I wasn't expecting her to put on makeup, put on the wig, do all the things she did to look like Phyllis Diller. It's like, I even said to her, I'm just, I'm just taking notes here. You didn't have to go to all that trouble. You could have just relaxed. She said, oh, no, no, I want to look nice for you. And she was the first person I was interviewing for this book. And I couldn't get the first sentence out of my mouth 
And she said, I want to know who else you've spoken to. Before you answer anything, who else did you speak to? Well, I hadn't spoken to anybody else yet. I didn't want her to know that. I hesitated. And I know you can't see this without visual stuff. But she put her fingers next to my nose and went, I want to know who you already saw snapping like that. And I said to her, you know, Phyllis, you remind me of Lucille Ball. Yeah. And Phyllis said, Lucille Ball, she was a bitch. <laughs> and then her laugh stopped halfway through. I just stared at her. And she went, oh. I said, can we continue now, please? Because don't snap your fingers in my face. That's, I don't care how big a star you are. That is not going to fly with me. And by the way, Lucille Ball was not a bitch. Phyllis had a really hard time with Lucille Ball because of an event, a singular event. Lucille Ball, as many of you know, was this enormous star on television for so many years. And uh, in 1973, she broke her leg so that her series, Here's Lucy, dealt with the broken leg. And one of the things they did to cover that Lucille really couldn't walk very well yet, her leg was still on a cast, they brought in Jim Bailey to do a half hour on Here's Lucy. Lucy, Arnaz, and Jim were good friends. If they were more than good friends, I don't know about it. But they were good friends. And the script, I think written by the original Lucy writers, that Lucy Carter was working on a charity show. And they hired Phyllis Diller for it. And Phyllis was double booked and couldn't make it. And Lucy Kim brought in her friend Jim Bailey to do Phyllis Diller. And Jim did like 10 minutes of Phyllis Diller on the show. And then they cut uh, earlier in the week, Lucy and Jim did a, a musical number together with Jim dressed like a man. Jim Bailey was a female impersonator. May he rest in peace. He, he was a, a buddy of mine. And he did wonderful Barbara Streisand, Judy Garland, Peggy Lee, and Phyllis Diller. Yeah, it's an amazing all, Streisand. Phyllis really resented this. She said, Jeffrey, I have nothing against Lucille Ball as a person, and her shows were wonderful. But here is this man going on nationwide television, and in those days, 30 or 40 million people were watching Lucille Ball every week. She said, he's dressed up like me, doing my delivery, saying my jokes. He's stealing from me. If she wanted a Phyllis Diller, they could have hired Phyllis Diller. I would have loved to have been on the show with her. Instead, they hire somebody else to impersonate me. She said, I am angry at the production company, but they allowed this to happen. They didn't hire me. But a little insight to how Phyllis guarded her copyright, her, her, her persona. That was her bread and butter. And she did not like it that Jim Bailey was impersonating her. Uh, it was different with music, I think. Jim, Jim was, was using what were already old songs of these performers. He wasn't singing their brand new stuff. He wasn't taking their new music away from them. He was doing old signature tunes. And most of the people that he imitated took it as a compliment. Phyllis thought that Jim was talented, 
but that he was stealing from her. Then she said some unkind things uh, uh, about Lucille Ball and Lucy Arnaz that weren't true, so I'm not going to repeat them. But it left a really bad taste in her mouth. She was very, very protective. You have no idea. It's so different today. To be a woman in show business, even as recently as the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when Phyllis was at the height of her powers, was so difficult. You learned as a woman to advocate for yourself better than any man can. And yet the men resented you for it because they thought they were in control. And there were no female executives in show business. So you were in a man's world, but you had to protect yourself. So, so all of these ladies, including Miss Ball, learned how to protect themselves. It is why historians talk about it. I'll throw some names at you. Catherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, Lucille Ball, Ethel Murray. Oh, they were such a bitch. Oh, they were so controlling. No, they were just doing what every man did, which was to advocate for themselves for top quality. But because they were female, the names came out. And the resentments came out. And Phyllis had to deal with that too. So now here's this man taking her jokes out of her mouth. He did it brilliantly, but he's still taking the jokes out of her mouth. So it, it left, not, not to make too much of a joke about taking things out of her mouth, but it left with a bad taste. So did Phyllis confront him about that? Phyllis ignored him as if he didn't exist. And how did she ever talk to Lucy about it? No, no. They did not travel in the same circles. Remember, Lucille Ball was not a stand-up comic. Lucille Ball was perhaps the most brilliant comedy actress who ever lived, but she was an actress. Phyllis, first and foremost, was a stand-up comic. They didn't travel in the same circles privately. Oh, of course, they ran into each other at uh, show business functions and parties and things. But it wasn't like Phyllis was inviting Lucille to her house for dinner or vice versa. They weren't close that way. Right. They each had their own coterie of close friends. The name of the show is Hitting the Mark. I'm Jeffrey Mark. And today we're talking about my friend, Phyllis Diller.